I'm Lloyd Freeman, and this is Dimensions of Diversity. The end of affirmative action. It has sparked frustration, hysteria, and uncertainty. Universities and private employers alike are wondering, what does this all mean? And it's time for us to unpack it all. I have with me today, Dr. Sean Harper. He's USC's provost professor, resident DEI scholarly expert, and head of USC's Race and Equity Center. Dr. Harper, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yes, I am excited to have this conversation. I feel like I've been talking around this conversation for quite some time with so many people in these DNI circles. And so I'm happy to, to really double click on it and drill down uh, to establish yourself because I mean, I know your background, but can you please tell our listeners about your background and how you kind of embarked on your inspiring career path? Sure. Um, I am a professor here in two schools at USC, the Rasier School of Education and the Marshall School of Business. I started there because you know, really uh, being in those two schools, on those two faculties, I think really nicely captures my identity as, as a scholar, as a consultant, as a researcher. Um, I work in educational spaces, but I've also worked with more than 400 businesses, firms, agencies, and other organizations outside of education. Um, you know, my goal is always the same. It is to help organizations and the people who lead them um, to advance and sustain diversity, equity, and inclusion. I always aim to make places better than I found them uh, through you know, the research and the tools and all of the wisdom that I've amassed over my now 25 year career. Um, let's see, what else can I tell you? I am a native of Thomasville, Georgia, which is a small- I was gonna say, you gotta town. tell us where Thomasville is. Yeah, it's a small rural town right on the Georgia-Florida border. Okay. Um, it's about, 12 miles from Florida. Um, it is a racially segregated, um, racially stratified place. It was the birthplace of my interest in racial equity for sure. Um, and you know, over the years, as I became, you know, deeply expert on racial equity, I started to, you know, care very deeply about gender equity and equity for LGBT persons and others who experience marginalization, oppression, and disadvantage um, in their residential schooling and employment context. And you have been in this space for quite some time. I know you spent some time on the East Coast. Uh, and so where you were at the University of Pennsylvania, you founded the Center uh, for the Study of Race and Equity in Education. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what inspired you to develop that academic center and how it has evolved since its inception? Yeah, uh, 10 of the best years of my life were spent at Penn. Uh, during that time, I occasionally would have these very pleasant run-ins with Penn faculty members who were outside of education, who were studying race, racial equity, and people of color um, as it pertained to education, but they were in nursing and sociology and Penn Law School and so on. So that was really the impetus for the creation of the center to create an interdisciplinary space to bring all of those folks together um, to leverage what we know from our research and our respective networks and so on and so forth. Um, I never would have imagined 12 years ago that the center would you know, ultimately become the high impact enterprise that it is. You know, like I was just a well-intended professor who wanted to set a table <laughs> for other professors to come together and talk about race and pursue grants and things together and do research. But since that time, um, 
the center has worked with more than now 700 school districts, colleges, universities, companies, government agencies, and so on. Um, we have been privileged to have been awarded more than $36 million in grants and contracts for the work we do. Um, there are now 29 people who work here full-time. Hmm. Uh, 27 of us are people of color. Uh, we also have an extensive network of vetted, nationally recognized experts who are on a bench with us, who develop curriculum with us, teaching our professional learning programs, um, do executive coaching and other strategy advising and things with us. And, you know, of those 200 people, you know, more than 90% of them are people of color. So that is the real point of pride for me to have founded a very small thing that has now become a really incredibly large thing that, you know, literally impacts every geographic region of the United States. I love it. And an impactful thing. You neglected to mention that. And I talk about your impact because I have no doubt uh, that certainly being someone who is that far in the trenches on, on race and equity and DEI, that you have been probably the busiest man uh, on campus uh, in opining on uh, and at least reacting to uh, the affirmative action rulings from the Supreme Court. Uh, I know for a fact that simply, I think a day after the rulings that you hosted a seminar uh, through the center that pulled in thousands, thousands of participants around the nation. Again, everyone with kind of a question mark over their head. What do we do now? What are the potential impacts on, and it can probably be segmented, right? On higher education and on the workplace. Uh, can you talk to our listeners? I know it's very hard for you to summarize all of what you likely went over during that program, but you made some predictions uh, around what some of the impacts are and will be uh, on higher education, maybe even the workplace. Uh, what is, what's like a quick synopsis of those? Yeah, sure. Uh, the quickest synopsis is for listeners to go to my Forbes author page. Um, I don't have enough jobs. Um, so <laughs> in addition to being a professor and a center director, I also write for Forbes. Um, all of my Forbes pieces are open access. So um, I, I published a piece. It went live within the hour after the SCOTUS decision was released. I wrote that piece like three weeks prior. I mean, we all knew. No shock or surprise. Yeah, what the inevitable outcome was going to be. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in that piece, I predicted that there will be a decline in the enrollment of students of color across all racial and ethnic groups beyond white students. White students are going to be fine, but um, there will be a decline, right? But the decline is going to be most devastating for Black students. Why hmm. would I make such a grim prediction? Well, it's because we've seen this movie before. We've seen it here in California. Uh, with the passage of Prop 209 in 1996 that banned the use of race as a factor in mm -hmm. college admissions um, and in employment, by the way, um, in, in California, public institutions, higher ed, K-12, and workplaces. Um, exactly one decade after the passage of Prop 209, so we're talking now 2006, mm -hmm. CLA had 96 Black freshman in his incoming first freshman class 96 it's a historic low right i'd be remiss if i did not also note that a portion of that 96 a big portion were student athletes um, uh -huh. 
you know, California is not the only state. There are seven or eight others um, that also enacted state level bans ahead of the Supreme Court ban on affirmative action. And in each of those state contexts, we've seen a decline, most especially among Black students. Uh, so that will happen. Um, another prediction that I made is that colleges, universities, and corporations will engage in what I call interpretive overreach. Hmm. Uh, will convince themselves quite conveniently that, oh, we can't do this, we can't do that, we can't do anything that has anything to do with race because- so let's scrap it. Or the Supreme Court struck down all race conscious things. Like, no, that's not what happened, right? A very careful reading of the SCOTUS opinion uh, makes really clear that this was about the use of race as a factor in college admissions. It didn't say that you can't have, you know, a new Black Studies Center or a new Latinx um, resource group or whatever. Um, but I know for sure, right, that people who weren't really serious about diversity, equity, and inclusion anyway, uh, you know, will now leverage this as rationale to discontinue educational and corporate investments into DEI programming. You said it. You said it. I, I do want to make sure that that I um I explore. You talked about the impact that this will have on on the enrollment of people of color, specifically black students. Are we talking about because many people, of course, they see that Harvard was, you know, a party to at least one of the affirmative action cases. Is this going to be the the is there going to be a decline, I should say, at only the elite institutions? Or are you really talking about across the board in all institutions? What's your prediction there? Well, I am so glad that you asked. This is such an important question. Um, I was just like, in, I was like on a rhythm or in a rhythm um, following the, the Supreme Court ruling. Um, and I wrote like, like six Forbes articles in like three days. Because <laughs> um, I had a lot to say, as you might imagine. Let's let's put a pin there for a second. Let me tell okay. you why I had so much to say. I went to a historically black university, Albany State, in Albany. Love it. Um, as an undergraduate, my bachelor's degree is from there, and I had an amazing experience there. Then I went to Indiana University for my master's and PhD. I had an amazing experience there, as well. But the two contexts, as you might imagine, are demographically and culturally very, very different. Yes. I remember in the very first class that I took in 1998 in my master's program, the very first paper I wrote was on affirmative action hmm. in college admissions way back in 1998. So as you might imagine, really, I've been thinking about this for the entirety of my of my career. So I had a lot to say. One, two things that I that I said in two separate uh, Forbes articles. One, I was looking for something else, but I just happened to make this discovery. Hmm. Black students at Harvard and Princeton actually graduate at higher rates than everybody else. They graduate at higher rates than the average of all students at Harvard and Princeton. At Yale, the Black student graduation rate is the exact same as it is for everybody else. Hmm. So, you know, that turns that whole myth 
on his head that was used in the affirmative action uh, you know, debates all these years that these elite institutions are admitting these unqualified Black students who can't do the work. It's unfair to more qualified white and Asian applicants. And furthermore, it's unfair to those Black kids who are being set up for failure. No, that's a lie. The data mm -hmm. don't show that. The data show that Black students actually graduate at a higher rate than students overall. So I documented that in one of the Forbes pieces. Um, I think that one became my most read Forbes piece ever. Then there was this other one that continues to pick up steam. It was a list of 30 well-known, reasonably highly respected, depending on who you ask, I suppose, but highly respected institutions, colleges and universities that admit 50% or more of the students who apply for admission. Hmm. Um, so it, it goes to your question of, wait a minute, are we just talking about the elites here? I think so. Um, we're not talking about Michigan State University or Arizona State or Indiana University where I went or LSU or Ohio State or Penn State. I could go on and on, right? There's a list of 30. Um, Virginia Tech is another. You know, those are all recognizable schools that if you ask most people, especially people who live within those states. Oh, where God, absolutely. Institutions are located, they would say, oh, yeah, absolutely. As a Pennsylvanian, I will tell you affirmatively that Penn State University Park is an amazing university. And it is. And it's also a place that provides broad access to Pennsylvanians, right? So the point here is that I am hoping that really this ruling that is mostly about elite institutions, I am hoping that it doesn't unravel the progress that those public flagship institutions have made over the years in expanding access uh, particularly to people in residence in their states. So how do we go then from, from merely being hopeful to taking some action? I know you talked about um, in one of your pieces about these totally legal actions that people can, uh, the institutions can take now to avoid some of those very grim predictions you talked about earlier. Uh, give, me, give us a sampling of some of the most impactful ways that universities can begin to counteract some of these negative impacts that, that you're predicting of the decision. What would those be? Sure. You mentioned that forum that the USC Race and Equity Center hosted 28 <laughs> hours after the Supreme Court issued its ruling. We were ready. Uh, we called that forum affirmative reaction. Ooh. And it was a national forum in which I offered guidance to the nation and really to the world. There were nearly 3,200 people who attended from 48 states across the US and from nine other countries. People were hungry for guidance in that moment. Uh, what I said to those nearly 3,200 people is that um, it's time to discontinue our reliance on standardized interest exams. They tell us very, very, very little about a student's likelihood to succeed beyond at best the first semester in college or in graduate school. Um, instead, it continues to be a gatekeeping tool. So oh, absolutely we, it is. We got to scrap the GRE, the LSAT, the GMAT, 
the SAT, ACT. We got to replace it. Replace it with what? So I just want to make sure that we don't give people guidance and say scrap it, but then they they put what in its place. I am. This is a really good question. Um, <laughs> you know, there are lots of colleges and universities across the country who discontinued their reliance on standardized entrance exams yes. yes. and replaced it with nothing. So I, I I don't know that we need to. Certainly, we should not replace it with another gatekeeping tool. Um, I was an admissions officer in a form in a former life. Three years in MBA admissions and two years as the head of doctoral admissions here at USC. I want people to replace standardized interest exams with admissions officers who actually read the applications. Oh. And who get to know applicants through interviews and through portfolios and right the essay all, all of those things so you can really find out about the individual find out about the candidate what they're going to yeah. add to the institution to its legacy yes and listen i understand when i worked in mba admissions at the indiana university kelly school of business we got roughly around 2700 applications for fewer than 300 slots right. and our team was very small right mm -hmm. Reading 2,700 applications is that's mission impossible. Mission impossible. A lot of work. Um, but what we can't do is, you know, instantly discount people or discard them from consideration because their GRE, GMAT, SAT, ACT scores are too low. Um, so there's there's that. I also suggested in that forum that we must cast a wider net in our pursuit of diversity. There's mm -hmm. a thing that happens. I'm embarrassed by it. I, I'm not a participant in it, but e even not being a participant, I, I, I'm i embarrassed. Let me tell Let me you. hear it. So I give lots of talks around the country mm -hmm. about you know race and DEI and things, right? When I am on college campuses, oftentimes the organizers of my visit will ask, if I'd be willing to, you know, meet with a group of students of color or spend time specifically with a group of black students. On most campuses, particularly public institutions, when I'm in a circle with black students, I have them first go around and quickly uh, introduce themselves, tell me mm -hmm. where they're from and where they went to high school. About a quarter of the way around the circle, I'm like, dang, like, it's like the 12 of y'all that went to the same high school. And like, as we make our way around the circle, it becomes really clear, so clear to me that college admission officers often go to the exact same places to recruit black students, right? Well, no wonder, <laughs> no wonder there isn't growth and increase uh, right. and change in the representation of black students when you do what you've always done you're guaranteed to get what you've always the got. same results correct correct there are highly qualified admissible black students everywhere including at thomasville georgia i was gonna say yeah <laughs> we're everywhere so if institutions are really serious about you know attracting um a diverse applicant pool they're going to have to do what college football coaches do. 
at big time schools like mine, like USC, we like to win in football. Um, we have in an obscene number of national championships. We have the most Heisman Trophy winners of any institution. I could tell you right now that our head coach and his staff don't just sit back every year with their arms folded, waiting to see who applies to, to be- To see who submits a tape, right? <laughs> right. No, they don't do that, right? Instead, <laughs> they and scouts go to the edges of the earth, really, to find the most extraordinarily qualified and talented yeah. athletes to bring their talents here. And we compete fiercely for them with, you know, other big time uh, football programs. You know, college admissions officers, they're going to have to do more of that. I love it. I love it. Do do the same that you would do or do more um, for your academics than, than you would do for your athletics. Yeah, the challenge with that, right, is that um, those black athletes bring billions of dollars to the NCAA. Don't we know it? At conferences and to their institutions. That's mm -hmm. the difference. Dr. Harper, let's stop here and let's continue our conversation with the ripple effects of affirmative action on the private sector with workplace DEI programs. Dimensions of Diversity is brought to you by Buchanan, Ingersoll & Rooney. Please rate and review our podcast. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe to hear all of our new content as we continue to explore ways in which we can all advance diversity and inclusion. I'm your host, Lloyd Freeman, and thank you for listening.